garden everyone welcome to this new episode of our podcast uh, newly named pacific talks a conversation on the future of the pacific where i talk to leaders from the pacific or around the world to have a look at the current challenges the pacific is facing or will face in the future and today i'm very happy to welcome on the show andre afasamanga who's joining us from new zealand andre is a human rights advocate who's currently working for the new zealand human rights commission Before that, he was a Christian pastor, and in the end of 2019, Andre got on, uh, on the news after publishing an opinion piece titled Gay, Christian, and a Former Preacher, I'm Coming Out to Help Anyone Hurt by Fallout, following some public declarations made by the rugby player Israel Fallout, but more on that later. So without further ado, let's start this conversation to share his views on different challenges that can impact the Pacific today and in the future. André, Yorana. Yorana, uh, uh, bonjour, talo for lover. Uh, my name is André Afnissanga, and um, as you said, I'm uh, here um, in Wellington, New Zealand, although I'm also of Samoan heritage uh, as well. All right, thank you, and welcome on the show. So, André, first and foremost, for our audience who may not already know you, can you tell us who you are and what was your life path and up until now, knowing that we'll talk more in detail afterwards about what happened since the end of uh, 2019? Awesome. Well, um, I'm Samoan. I was born and raised in New Zealand. I grew up in a traditional Samoan uh, home, which meant that it was uh, quite conservative, uh, traditional Samoan values, and also very Christian as well. Um, so I had a normal um, sort of upbringing in childhood in New Zealand for someone that's Pacific. You know, my parents came here, uh, you know, decades ago to try to forge a better future um, for themselves and also for a future family. And so um, I have a typical story of the, a migrant, uh, a Pacific migrant to New Zealand and also to Australia as well. Uh, so I grew up, you know, um, Christian values and education was super important. Um, so, you know, I have that in common with a lot of uh, Pacific people in, in my part of the world. Um, along the line, I became a committed Christian, but I always knew that I was gay. And, um, and when I became a Christ, uh, committed Christian and also gave my life to Jesus, I kind of, uh, you know, soon learned that that was incompatible, I suppose, of Christian teachings that I've been homosexual and also been Christian as well. Um, so I basically uh, suppressed my sexuality. I didn't, I didn't tell, um, I wasn't hiding my sexuality, but I was trying not to be gay. And so using the church and teachings and things like called conversion therapy practices, um, I tried to become straight and I eventually became a pastor as well. Um, and then uh, along the line, I got to a certain age and I just thought after trying to be straight for many years and that not working for me, I decided that um, that I needed to be true to, my, to myself um, as gay. And, um, and then I decided to stop being a pastor And I eventually came out uh, publicly at the end of 2019. All right. And so you, this uh, coming out was not only just for your family, but uh, was a public coming out because uh, you yes. made this opinion piece in an Australian newspaper. Uh, mm -hmm. And this happened in the midst of the Israel Folau scandal. So can you tell us a little bit about this context and why did you decide to come out and to do uh, this in the midst of this uh, situation? Sure. So I sort of started coming out to myself and my family and my close friends. Um, and I always thought because I, in my denomination, I was kind of well known as a pastor, that eventually I knew that I was going to have to come out 
um, to more than just my family and friends because mm. I knew the news was going to get around. And um, and to be honest, I didn't want people gossiping about me. I'm, I'm, I, I thought at least if people were gossiping about me that they would at least have the facts from me. <laughs> mm. But around that same time, um, and, and then I became employed at um, the New Zealand Human Rights Commission. So... Um, and by the way, this interview that I'm conducting today, these are my personal views, not the views of the commission necessarily, although the Human Rights Commission obviously supports, you know, um, you know, gay rights and rainbow mm-hmm. rights, obviously, but uh, my views are my own today. Um, but I suppose working in human rights, um, they're my own coming out to myself and to my family. And then in 2018, but then again in 2019, when I go on social media after the rugby star Israel Folau, um, the whole debacle of where he made uh, posted a sort of a Christian meme and a Bible verse saying that homosexuals would go to hell along with lots of other um, so-called sinners. And when I'd gone to Facebook, I, to be honest, I was just becoming quite annoyed and uh, and actually quite uh, saddened by the discussion or type of discussion or the quality of discussion that I'd see when I'd gone to Facebook and social media. And many Christians would um, be espousing uh, homophobic views. And I just knew that uh, if you were gay and if you were rainbow and if you were Pacific, that you were seeing your loved ones, uh, including church leaders and family members, speaking of homosexuality and speaking of rainbow people in the most negative way. And I really started to worry about the mental health impacts and well-being of of young or rainbow people who are Pacific, but especially those who are young. And I actually thought whether Israel knew it or not, and I don't think he really knew it. I think he's just a product of his environment. But what I could see happening is that another generation of Pacific people being forced back into the closet and feeling less safe to become themselves. That's one thing. But when I think the church then supports that, um, and reinforces that, I feel that's a real issue because I feel like the church should be a safe place for all mm. and that shouldn't necessarily become so politicised and involved in these types of debates. And I thought as a former pastor that the church has got to be an accepting and safe place for all people, particularly those that aren't accepted by, you know, mainstream uh, society. So when I started seeing all that stuff, it started. I, I think I got annoyed because I thought that's not how the church should be. And that's why I thought it was important for me to come out to share another side of the story and also to humanise this debate that had become very theological, very theological and, um, yeah, and, and unbalanced in my view. Mm. All right, thanks. And uh, obviously coming out publicly like this made you kind of uh, an ambassador or, or a leader for uh, the cause of uh, gay rights uh, in the Pacific uh, and because this conversation turns around uh, leadership and how leaders like you can help the region move forward in the future, uh, before we move forward, can you tell us what is your definition of leadership? Yeah. Awesome. Uh, it's so funny that you describe me in that way. That's certainly not the way that I describe myself, <laughs> like in terms <laughs> of, you know, uh, being a leader in this area. And But I do think, to me, it. Um, it's how I would view a leader as well. I think those that are looking to be leaders per se, um, 
sometimes, in my opinion, the leaders that I respect the most are those ones that aren't necessarily looking to be leaders, but rather have a cause or, or an issue uh, that they feel so strongly about that their life really just gets behind that whole sort of ethos and that whole belief. So for me, leaders aren't necessarily those that call themselves leaders or even people that um, that we call leaders, but rather those that are just living their lives and living it in a really integrated way, you know. So for me, it's less about what you say in public. That's important, but also it's the way that you live your life, um, the example, the way that you treat people. Are you helping people, you know? Is your actions backing up the rhetoric and the public rhetoric, you know? There's been many times I've met leaders in real life, and and I know I can be like this because I used to be a pastor and I used to speak a lot. And sometimes in my mind I would think, oh, my gosh, you were better on the stage. <laughs> like, the more I'm learning about you, like, the more disheartened I'm becoming, you know? So I certainly think for me, like, the in my opinion, the leaders that I admire the most are not necessarily those that are making the loudest um, noise in terms of their words, but rather, you know, the impact they're having on people's lives. So, uh, and I think Pacific leadership, Christian leadership, those things are really important as well, is that we are backing up, I suppose, our words with the ethos, you know, and also, you know, by the value add that we are bringing to people's lives and particularly helping those that can't, that sometimes don't have a platform to speak for themselves because people aren't listening to them. Mm. Do you think it's also coming with uh, uh, accepting the fact that when you come out like this, when you take a stand on, on your values, on the situation, it comes with the risk of uh, being attacked, uh, like being uh, fragile maybe in the, in the open? Uh, do you think it's important in the way that you show the example to show also your sensibility? And how did you deal with this when it happened to you? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, to be honest, I was expecting the pushback. And I, I think when I was a pastor, my question always was, because I know that the church can be perceived as being really judgmental and being like a club where a lot of people aren't allowed. So when I was a pastor, I was always asking that question, who's not in this church and why not? Uh, the irony is, is that I hadn't accepted myself, but I was certainly trying to make my own local churches accepting of other people. I just wasn't able to apply my belief that I had for others to me when it came to my sexuality. Mm. I think I was always used to sort of like sticking up and speaking up uh, for people in my church or that I suppose those who were Christians didn't think we were sort of acceptable to church. So I was always happy to to carry that responsibility for others. Um, so when I came out publicly, I thought I was going to have some backlash. I don't think what I was ready for was actually lots of acceptance as well. Uh, so many people, and I wasn't expecting this, I was expecting just a lot of negativity. And I got so much support from all around the world where people were saying that is my story as well. I so relate to that. Or people would say to me, my gosh, if the church or Christians lived out what you were saying in that article, I could actually come to church, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a really lot of positive support as well. I think one of the things that really stuck out to me was that I heard from a university chaplain uh, at a university and they said to me at a secular university, and they said to me, I wish this article had come out a couple of months ago. We had a couple of students, specific students who were suicided to this issue. 
And they just thought that if this type of discussion, if this type of visibility was, you know, present maybe even a couple of months earlier, it might give people different alternatives in terms of that you could be gay, you could be Christian, and you could be Pacific, you know? Mm. Um, So I feel like any fear of rejection or criticism was outweighed by what I wanted to do and I wanted to help people. And I think that's, you know, in this way, while not being a pastor for the church, I feel like good leaders and good pastors are always helping people anyway because it's not about us. And you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, that the leaders in the Pacific region are very influenced by our religion and mostly Christianity. So how do you think our current leaders throughout the region are dealing with the influence of religion in their decision-making while facing challenges that are quite new for uh, everyone? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, One of the things that I think is really important is that I think it's important for for Pacific leaders to... uh, One of the things I always like to say is that... um, you know, the missionization um, and the colonization of the South Pacific is so successful. That campaign from the colonial powers is so successful that today, uh, when you look at the Christian church across the Pacific, and I'm talking about Australia and New Zealand as well, a large part of that makeup is from Pacific people. So we have well and truly taken on board and adopted and lived out like what this, you know, what the missionaries mm. first put our, our um, shores so long ago. But I also like to say as well is that when um, our ancestors were receiving the the missionaries and you know the effects of colonization, that they weren't passive agents uh, in that process. And I kind of feel like they were always negotiating according to their own self-interest like what elements of the Bible, what elements of, you know, colonization would would work for them. So whether that was the um, appeal of egalitarianism or whether it was the appeal of familial familial hierarchical structures, I feel as if when they were receiving that it it was resonating with what was already existing with them. So that's all to say that from the beginning, we have not been passive agents um, in in our version of Christianity. And so to me, I kind of feel like Pacific leaders uh, have a really important role in terms of shaping uh, what Christianity looks like in this side of the world, our own flavour of Christianity, I suppose, uh, rather than sort of adopting just um, wholesale, I suppose, these Western values. I think we have a really awesome opportunity to shape our own brand of Christianity that's far more inclusive. Mm. Um, so we don't do it in a lot of places we do it in some places and a lot of it's by self-interest and all I'm saying is that because of your love for rainbow family members that actually we can reinterpret and we can have a a more inclusive conversation about who's being left and who's not you know so for instance in some uh, denominations across the Pacific you know Bafafinge and you know other island versions are they're able to worship in um, in some of those denominations because I think people have, you know, um, sort of figured out that these are our family members who we love, so they have a place. Um, I kind of feel like the more your denomination, though, is influenced by Western 
denominational values or histories that the less likely you are to do that. And, and I want to say to us that we are not passive agents. Uh, rather, we are, you know, we put family first. We say we love people, we love our families, we love our communities, and we love God. Therefore, that we need to really prioritize the needs of our rainbow community who are suffering, actually. Mm, interesting. And, and that reminds me of a, a quote uh, that from you on an interview last year where you said church is mostly espoused the traditional biblical interpretation on homosexuality. Unfortunately, it means that people like me are on the outside of, of that. But as you said, traditionally, there there are those people like the Fafafine or the Rere in Tahiti that used to be allowed in the society, had a precise role in society and were quite accepted. So do you think the collide between tradition and Christianity at some point made this uh, conflict between identities in the Pacific where we let some elements of the tradition go uh, and we reinforced others like the notion of the, the male, the warrior and, and all that that may be reaffirmed by the image of the man in Christianity and how do you think all this is mixed up together today and how, how to deal with this on a daily basis? Yeah, I think that's really good questions. I think fundamentally when it comes to Christianity, even when it comes to leadership, when it comes to all the systems that we currently uh, live and operate by in the Pacific, I do believe there's a real need to decolonize those systems to actually look at um, what has been imported in terms of colonization, in terms of Western thought, And uh, let's decolonize those and let's pick and choose what's working for us, you know. And when I think what makes a good Pacific leader, I think of a leader that is looking for the, for the welfare and the well-being of the entire community, not just some people, not just the privileged. Because if you live as the diaspora, as I do in New Zealand, have lived in Australia, you will know well that the Pacific people within these countries Uh, are some of the most marginalized people as a large cohort. You know, so we experience and suffer from some of the worst social disadvantage and outcome. Therefore, if you're a rainbow person within already a marginalized community, your marginalization is, you know, further increased and impacted. Um, who is going to be speaking up for us? You know, who is going to have a voice for us? Who is going to protect us in light of the fact that we face discrimination just because of the color of our skin and our ethnicity in these countries in which we live. Um, and I would say a good leader, good community leaders are looking to protect the most vulnerable within the communities, understanding that we all experience this. So if I can go back to just decolonizing um, our beliefs, including our religion, I think we need to really assess, like, what have we taken on board that's very Western that is actually marginalizing some of our community members? When I look at um, the where Fafafinga fits into society, I would say that, um, you know, within the rainbow cohort that obviously trans uh, people have their worst forms of discrimination all around the world and, um, and even in the Pacific, despite the acceptance of Fafafinga as well. But I will say this, that I think um, Fafafinga is more understood in a Pacific context um, because it fits the heteronormative roles uh, within society. Um, 
So for instance, whawhawhinga and whawhawhgama, which is the male equivalent, um, it fits in well to the collective family structure, you know, uh, of Samoan. So for instance, um, you know, if you're a whawhawhinga and um, you still are expected to provide for the family, you are still expected to play the, the role of a female in a heteronormative understanding because it's all around the family, uh, you know, centred around what works for the family. So I think that's why there is place for whawhawhinga, but there is not necessarily understanding of someone like me, for instance, and I'm, mm. I, understand I have privilege as a cis gay male, but I do think um, it makes no functional sense in a Samoan Pacific understanding that like, okay, so I like another male, I'm attracted and that's, you know, but I don't think that necessarily serves the family, you know, like in terms of how does this serve the family unit? Um, and so I think that's why there is the acceptance at least of the whawhawhinga, but I must say that I'm not whawhawhinga, so I can't speak for this community, but I think... Um, I think when we're decolonizing and picking apart what works for us, we need to get to it as something that works for everyone, you know? Mm. Uh, yeah. So would you say that? I kind of feel like it was a bit <laughs> <confusing>. Apologies. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it's super interesting. And, uh, and I wonder if you think that actually colonization through religion, uh, because indeed that's mostly where it started, brought yes. some kind of rigidity in the social construct of the uh, Pacific communities. Whereas before they had like a more uh, like flexibility or more fluidity that was allowing every type of identity to find their role and their place in the society. And, and eventually now we had to answer to a more binary vision of, of the world. Absolutely. I, yes, yes, yes to everything you've said. <laughs> I think um, I think what we often do in uh, Pacific cultures, and I'm just going to speak generally now across all the cultures, is that we do tend to uh, romanticize and we mythologize in terms of, um, you know, some of the values and some of the practices that we have today. And we romanticize them to the point that we cannot touch them, you know. We don't know where they started. Did they start with colonization? Did they start with the church? It actually doesn't matter, you know. I mean, it doesn't matter, but they've become so untouchable that we, to even question them, or to even raise it as an issue is uh, seen as an affront to those institutions, you know, like of culture and also religion as well. Um, yeah, so I agree with you. I think what we need to do, though, is have honest conversations um, around how, how did we get here? And, and again, I think one of the important things in this conversation is, is it working for everyone? You know, mm. there's a whole, there's a group within our societies and in our cultures that cannot be themselves, uh, that are experiencing discrimination and unfairness and not able to, you know, um, you know, if we're having, you know, rates of mental health and well-being and even suicide that are higher than the norm, we need to really think about um, this is not working for everyone. And it doesn't, and, and we need to then unpack and have the bravery to unpack those uh, romanticized notions, you know, of what is culture, what is Christianity, what does it mean to be Pacific? Mm. Interesting. What What's uh, also questioning me is the fact that, uh, so colonization brought these binary, rigid views of societies, 
But now, thanks to the internet or because of the internet, uh, we are going back to another kind of fluidity where basically everyone can be whoever they want because you can find a community that fits your views of the world or your identity. So we're talking more and more now a spectrum of identities. You can be uh, gay, you can be trans, you can be queer, you can be you can be basically whatever you want and find people who resonate with you on that. Uh, how do you think that is impacting uh, the Pacific communities now? Because not only the Pacific, but also in other parts of the world, we hear a lot of people saying, oh, this is not our tradition, this is not our culture, those identities are imported. Uh, yet we go back to the what we were just talking about. So it's like all messing up on that. And, and how do you think our leaders should cope with that? And mostly how should we educate them on those on those problems? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. I think um, I think there's probably, I'm just making this framework up in my mind, but I think there's some principles by which we need to test um, those types of ideas. I think, number one, we need a good scientific evidence base in terms of research, you know. Um, so, for instance, when we're talking about different identities, um, sexual orientations, expressions, gender, fluidity, whatever, I think the science really needs to inform our discussion. Even in the Pacific, it needs to, because otherwise this conversation can easily turn to uh, opinions and it can really easily turn. And it's mostly dominated by fear-based narratives. Mm. Um, people fearing that, um, you know, tradition, culture, religion um, is being... Um, compromised or under threat or being persecuted. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think evidence, so the science science is really important in terms of the gender issue. I think the other issue is like, um, let's have some good historical cultural discussions as well. Um, and what I mean by that is not being afraid to unpack those romantic notions that we have held onto. And as you, you just gave the example so well, like we keep talking about um, you know, gender fluidity, different gender identities as a threat to us. But actually, if we go back into our history, we will see actually that's what we emerged from. Mm. So it's having um, someone like to say, hey, this is what, you know, the history shows and this is what our culture shows as well. So someone to have those types of conversations as well. And to to lift the veil and say, like, these are not new ideas. These have happened before, you know. Uh, and I think the other important one that keeps coming back, and I, I keep calling it a, a people-centred approach or an ethical people-centred approach, is what we are believing. Is that working for everyone? So let's not just talk about what your opinion of it is and what you think should work. Are these constructs, um, are these, you know, does it work for everyone? And I think we've really got to, you know, hear people's stories more. I think we've got to listen more. And I think, um, you know, I really appreciate being on your podcast today. I think as you allow people of, as people of different diversity, different backgrounds, people that fit the intersection of someone like me, who I happen to be rainbow, I happen to be Christian, and I also happen to be Pacific, that as we get to hear these more nuanced accounts, we can um, have a better quality of discussion, you know, and it's less centered around, fear-based narratives about the what-if and people's opinions and and actually based on actually what happens for people, you know. And I think that actually requires our communities to, um, to resist vanity, 
so-called cultural purity to imagine that things were always amazing once, you know, like I don't mean to get negative, but I, you know, I kind of feel like we have this really high standard of sexual ethical purity within Pacific uh, religious and religious cultures. And yet, if you've lived any time in the Pacific, you will know that there's a lot of family sexual violence that occurs regularly, you know. You will know there's things like, despite um, us going to church all the time, you'll also know there's high rates of teenage pregnancy and pregnancy uh, outside of marriage. So I'm not trying to shame people at all. I'm just trying to say, uh, and I don't think it's a bad thing to be pregnant, by the way, at all. I'm just trying to say that despite our rhetoric and these standards that are impossibly high, the evidence and the data and the research will show that none of us can actually live up to these very standards so do we continue to bang the drum louder and continue to say the standard is up here and everyone is failing it or do we actually take a look at the reality and actually say hey uh in the process of this reality over here we are judging a whole bunch of people we're excluding a whole bunch of people we're making people feel really bad about themselves to the point that their mental health and well-being has been compromised and also to the point that some people might have suicidal thoughts. Are we going to live with that or are we actually going to change our religion and our culture, which should be people-centred and centred around love, to make it work better for everyone, you know? Um, so I think those are the types of things that I think are really important yeah, and need to happen. That goes back to your definition of leadership, where it's not about what you say but what you do, the example that you show. Uh, but you also think it would require at some point a more horizontal type of leadership where you can offer a space for everyone to speak up, to tell their views, their perspective, and then goes like kind of like power lower down the very vertical, somehow called traditional leadership that we can see in our community. Absolutely. And, and um, this is the other thing about leadership. And I think particularly where Christians have missed the boat Christian, the typical Christian leader has missed the boat. But actually, if you look at the example of Jesus, it's just hilarious to me because, um, because he was actually just about sacrifice and about other people. I mean, so, um, you know, Jesus, as we know, um, died on the cross. So there's this whole element of leadership coming with a cost and with a sacrifice as well. And yet, um, in order for us to have these conversations and to make it safer for people, everyone, it will come at a cost to leaders. And that cost is the release of power. It's also the release of holding all of this knowledge that favours and privileges, you know, the elites, you know. And it's actually about being open and actually saying that, hey, this system that works well for me and... Um, and these things that have made me popular in terms of like, you know, fear-based rhetoric, whatever, that um, that the sacrifice is that I'm going to lose all of that, you know, that popularity. I'm going to lose people um, feeling safe because sometimes people feel safe when we espouse, you know, these fear-based narratives. So anyway, this is all to say that Christian leaders should be the ones that are really leading the charge in terms of, you know, accepting that cost to ourselves because of other people. So if we look that other people are suffering and experiencing marginalisation and I have a platform by which I can help them, 
by bringing education and understanding despite getting some criticism and falling out of favour with the powers that be, well, if someone can do it and if someone should do it, it should be us. I may be idealistic, but I kind of feel like that's the difference that Christian leadership and Pacific leadership should bring. Like if we, if mm-hmm. there's a differentiation that we bring to leadership as a whole, to the body of leadership and the example of leadership, I kind of feel like that's what we should bring, you know, that people-centered mm-hmm. approach, yeah. And the sacrifice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And do, and do you think that... Uh the digital tools, the technology could be uh, helpful in that regards to spread the message, a more positive message, a more pacific message, as you said, even though kind of everything that started for you was because of uh, the spread of violence and, and calls <laughs> on, on, on internet eventually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just get really comforted. I know that uh, my story, many other people's stories are out there. And I think if you are a closeted, scared Christian or a young rainbow person somewhere in the world, um, and you can read stories, you can watch videos now, you know, that, that give you hope and let you know that you're not alone. I just love that, you know. Um, obviously, as you've alluded to, there's also lots of, um, you know, immature discourse out there, a lot of fear-based rhetoric a lot of um, fake news out there as well. And again, this is where I think it's really important for leaders uh, to be ethical, to be, um, to, to not spread news that is fake news, to not spread ideas that are based on fear. I think good leaders are about spreading hope and building bridges. Mm. Um, you know, not um, making people form, feel more scared than they are. I kind of feel like whether you're a Christian leader or a leader, our job, your job is to inspire and to bring hope and to bring solutions, not just to uh, just to call out all the bad things. I'll just give you an example. Uh, maybe three weeks ago I had an article ready to go that I was going to write on, um, you know, the Capitol Hill uh, riots mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the article was really about it was so disturbing to me when I saw those images and you would see Jesus save flags next to uh, white supremacists mm-hmm. and I thought Gosh, what is this that there is this comfortable association that no one is calling out you know um, and so anyway I got really passionate about that um, and I had an article um, that was about to be published. Uh, And at the last minute, based on the advice of a family member and then also my own thinking and praying, I I actually pulled back um, from publishing the article uh, because I think I feel like I made a lot of good points in terms of in terms of that we shouldn't have this association between racism, white supremacy, nationalism, and Christianity. Like, how do these things fit mm. together? They should not fit together. I feel like I made a lot of good points in that article, but I also felt like I had a responsibility to build a bridge as well. And I think in the article at that particular time, I was highlighting a lot of the issues, but I wasn't building the bridges enough. And I thought I had a responsibility to at least propose some positive solutions and also to allow people to engage in a respectful discussion 
after that type of article came out. And I think what in the type of age we live in with the, you know, prevalence of um, fake news, et cetera, and a lot of divisive discourse, um, there's also a lot of um, people just calling things out. And I, I think what happens is that that's not necessarily helpful as well because what it can do is preclude a really uh, mature and a respectful discussion and also uh, an understanding um, of each other's um, ideas and where people are coming from. So I think that's an important responsibility of leaders as well, to propose solutions and to model the very things that they were talking about. So in that case, like I had to, I felt like I had to pull that article because I could trump it and say all the things that were wrong, but if I wanted to model it, um, that was really missing from the article at the time. Interesting. That that you perfectly with the, my next question. I wanna I wanna take a, a step back and look at the more global uh, approach of of what we're living right now. Uh, so we have the discussion on, on minority rights, whether uh, sexual minorities, uh, ethnic minorities, even women. Uh, we have uh, a lot of resistance against the movements that are pleading for the rights of these people, but we also have a lot of resistance against uh, climate change, uh, which we are. Like experiencing firsthand in the Pacific, we have resistance against migrants. We have resistance against science now, uh, and Samoa, unfortunately, experiencing experienced that last year with uh, in 2019 with the measles uh, that was caused by anti-vax movements. So everything seems to go the wrong way sometimes when you look at what's happening in the world, and and all those bridges that, that you're talking about seems to be burned by leaders more than built. Uh, so do you think there has been a failure globally in leadership or is it a deeper problem in our societies that will require other ways of thinking? Because when you hear people say, oh, I have to be politically correct and I can't say anything, you're like, no, it's just common sense to not hurt other people's feelings. Yet it seems something that's very common to hear. So where do you think is the cause of all those, uh, those big divisions in our, in our communities globally? Yeah, no, I think, oh my gosh, I don't have the answer, obviously. <laughs> I, I wish you had. You, <laughs> no, no, no. I think you articulated those issues so well. Um, and I, I really feel, again, it's really contingent on leaders to actually um, to lead a really informed discussion. Um and when I say informed, like we've talked about science, you know, what does the evidence say? It just can't be people's personal opinions. We've got to really just up, like, um, you know, what does the evidence say? What does the science say? And again, like, um, what are the harms being caused, you know, in this situation? Like, uh, where are people's lives affected? Um, I feel like leaders need to take the time and the energy to, to research deeply. And when I say research deeply, I'm not talking about going to YouTube. I'm talking about not sitting in your echo chamber. I'm talking about, you know, crossing the aisle and actually finding out what, what people are thinking on the other side. But I think you have to be very careful in terms of um, when you're trying to build the understanding that you do have a leadership voice, you know, and, and in today's society, unfortunately, there's a lot of really negative voices out there as well. So I feel like we need to be building understanding and building bridges, but that also gets to the point where you cannot 
uh, repeat um, voices that are negative and are harmful just because, you know. Mm. I feel looking at, um, again, you have to look at who's been harmed. And, uh, for instance, the measles uh, situation, um, you know, like in terms of trying to understand what's happening on the other side, you don't have to repeat information that's actually going to to possibly kill people, you know, mm. or put them at great risk in terms of their health. So I feel like there needs to be, um, you yeah, know, a real uh, a balance in how we do this. I do feel, though, that church leaders who are before their congregations every week in a formal sense with the sermon or the liturgy and then influence their church members throughout the week, that they should really take more care in terms of um, the messages that are coming from the platform. It cannot just be what you are reading, hearing in your echo chamber, watching from, you know, your version of whatever's happening on YouTube, you know, like, and, and this is where I would say it's time to pass the mic. I feel like church leaders and churches have this incredible platform to do good and to spread good. And um, I've always subscribed to the belief that um, if it's good, God's in it, you know, and that means that even passing the mic to people that are outside of the church, is there a scientist, for instance, outside of the church or a, you know, clinician, a health clinician that can help my people. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a clinician, but there's a qualified, great doctor here who's gone to school for so many years, worked in the hospital, you know, invite them into the church, you know, ask them what their views are, you know, based on good experience, based on research, everything else. I also think it's really important in um, all of these debates that we have and there across so many areas that we need an inclusive discussion. It always makes me laugh in the church where a whole bunch of church leaders, church men are debating the role of women, you know, mm. on YouTube. It cracks me up. <laughs> and they're talking about what will work for women and they're men, you know. <laughs> Similarly, we have a whole bunch of cis straight males discussing gay rights. I just think that's the weirdest thing, you know, mm. when we're – debating all of these issues similarly as well to a whole bunch of white people debating racism i'm like listen it doesn't mean that these groups that fit outside these minority groups can't have an opinion or a view but they need to be informed views and they should be informed by lived experience you know um and i kind of feel like um good leaders good church leaders are uh, thinking less of protecting their own reputations and wanting to look right and be informed on every single subject and rather like just passing the mic to someone that knows it a lot better and actually modelling what learning looks like and modelling that posture of humility. Um, and that way our church members learn as well, you know, like in terms of, oh, we don't know about a subject. Okay, well, rather than jump into YouTube about that, like let's see what the science is and also let's, talk to someone who lives in, and walks in that world. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think the new generations are more equipped for this kind of approach than the elders? Absolutely. I, I do think so. Um, uh, I think, you know, social media um, and I think just being brought up by a different generation of parents, um, you know, gives them, uh, you know, a more confident, a bolder voice. Uh, but I was caution, though, in saying that um, that there needs to be a variety 
um, of approaches uh, to advocacy and to bringing change. And it just cannot be calling people out. There's a plan that absolutely. Um, but there needs to be a nuanced approach. Just as we can't romanticise the past, we can't also vilify the past as well. Mm-hmm. You know, can't always just be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I think there needs to be uh, a blending of approaches. And also there needs, it can't just fall on one person or one approach. I think there needs to be a multiplicity um, and a variety of different approaches. Um, I think when you're, uh, I mean, some people ask me, why am I still a Christian? You know, why am I still in the church? You know, despite, you know, not being accepted my denomination because I'm um, because I'm going. By the way, I'm Seventh-day Adventist. That's my background. I know there's a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, you know, across French Polynesia and Tahiti mm. as well. Um, and the reason I'm still there is because it's just part of my um, socialization. That's the way I was raised. I spent a lot of weekends at church. It's part of who I am. When I wake up in the morning, I pray. I read the Bible when I when I struggle, when I need help. You know, I need that spiritual guidance. So um, that's why I'm still here. Um, so just as I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater and, and painting all Christians as bad, um, you know, when we're doing our approaches, we, we can't have those broad stroke, stroke approaches, you know. Mm. Um, I do feel, though, um, as a former pastor, I I do kind of like I, I do actually like to, to place a bit more onus on the church and church leaders because I was one myself. And also I feel like they have such an important and influential voice in this issue where so many people are suffering unnecessarily. With the help of the church and with the help of leaders, we can alleviate suffering and we can actually bring understanding and remove some of the fear. So even though I say it's important not to broad brush stroke, I do feel like leaders can should be held to a different account. You know, that's actually a Christian, by the way. Uh, where we say that leaders and teachers are held to a different account because um, because we we enjoy the the benefits of the platform as well, uh, and because we do that, we should actually do the the important work and the sacrifices that come with that. So thanks. Uh, so okay, at this stage of the podcast, what I usually like to do is to quote uh, uh, an author uh, a book uh, and try to like of two great thinkers collide their ideas through a quote. Uh, and, and for this one, I chose uh, the book Far and Away from the writer and psychologist Andrew Solomon uh, that you may know about. And uh, so that's an account of all these travels and, and, and personal reflections. And he writes this, while I was good at fitting in under anomalous circumstances, I had to acknowledge my differences and accept that others noticed them too. You can't fit in with people by pretending to be just like they are. You fit in by engaging in a dialogue about your differences and by putting aside the assumption that your way of life is in any way preferable to theirs. So in this context of your closely tied island communities, uh, what do you think of this quote? I'm sorry, in the context of what, sorry? Of our very tight uh, communities in the island. Uh, Yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, oh gosh. Um, 
Like how easy do you think it can be to to be yourself when you depend so hardly on other people and and the strength of the bounds of the community are so important? That's right. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. Um, I think this is where leadership plays a really big role um, because um, because I always feel like the onus. Um, and the responsibility falls on leaders, Christian leaders, shepherds. That's a you know Bible uh, analogy in terms of shepherd looking out for sheep. I kind of feel like the good leaders are looking out for all of their people. Um, and so I feel like I know when I was a pastor. Well, when I was young, just to give you a bit of background, is that um, my mum would always say to my sister and I. Um, the person or the children that have no friends at school, that needs to be your best friend. And I thought, that's weird. But basically she said that when we'd go to school and if we'd see people by themselves, that she said that we had a responsibility to make friends with them. So anyway, that was just something that always uh, stuck out to me, you know. Um, Unfortunately, when I became a teenager, I then found out that that person was actually me because I had no friends, you know. So, um, But I think by the time I became a pastor and because of those experiences of feeling on the outside, um, I was always asking, who is not at this church and why not? Who are the people that are currently excluded? Who are people in our church that do not have a voice? So who are the people in our church but are marginalized. So I always feel like that's a really good quality of a leader to be looking out for everyone. So I actually think this is very practical. And so therefore, rather than asking the question of that person, like, why aren't you fitting in? And what do you need to do to change so you can fit in? I feel actually the ownership and the onus is on the leaders to actually say, why isn't this working for everyone? So instead of asking what can individuals do to fit in my question is more how can leaders make sure that the system and the organization is working for everyone and I feel like if you get it right for those who have the least agency the least power that it actually makes favorable conditions for everyone so that's a really long way of answering your question (laughs) it's what I always like to do in terms of putting the onus on leaders because we have power to influence change. And I kind of, I, if I can just be a little bit critical now, I, I kind of feel like in the Pacific model, it's not enough for pastors just to go up and do sermons, but they're not why people are pastors. I feel the essence of being a pastor, the essence of being a really good leader is to help people. And I feel that's our mission. And I feel like in a Pacific context, if you have forgotten what your mission is, and that is to follow on the example of Jesus to help people, particularly those that have been rejected and marginalised by society, then you have forgotten your true calling. And I think that's very, very sad. So I do hope that, um, yeah, I, I do hope that a new generation um, or a different brand of leader <laughs> will emerge. But I also hope that, our Pacific communities allow for that new type of leader to emerge, that we give them permission to 
to push us and permission to um, to help us unpack what I keep calling those romantic notions, you know, mm-hmm. help us to decolonize our understanding of culture and of the Bible because sometimes, again, it's these systems uh, that people want. You know, we want to feel safe and these systems mm-hmm. us feel safe, but but not everyone's safe. Yeah, and that's always the hard equation for a leader is to maintain the safety of his community while pushing them forward to good and, and necessary change. And that, that's always yeah. uh, difficult. All right. Yes. Uh, thanks, Andrew. I'll just have one more question for you. Uh, I could pick your brain for longer, but uh, we can't strain by time. So a uh, very easy question. What would be your advice or recommendation? to any person who would like to become an agent of change for his or her community and may feel helpless for now in the world that we live? Yeah. um, Gosh, I just think start where you are, you know. Um, Look around. I think as a Christian leader, um, one of the things I would say is like if, if you, I mean, you know, if you're looking in your community, look look for some of the issues, you know. If you don't know what those are, I would just say pray. I kind of feel like, you know, like if you believe in a higher power that, you know, you will find what those are. But I think we all know, um, you know, issues in our community, you know, um, some of the social issues. And I think just start where you are, you know. I think a really easy way to start is that a lot of people experience uh, loneliness, people experience bullying, People experience, um, you know, despite being on social media, a lot of people don't feel seen and heard. And I would just say, you know, um, whatever those issues are in your community, start by building relationships with people, you know, get alongside people. I, uh, you know, join a club, join a church where you can meet people that are different from yourself, you know, learn about other people. I think these are just really practical things that you can do, um, you yeah, I think meet people that are different from you. That's a really good mm. thing in terms of um, yeah, and particularly in terms of if you're, uh, if there's a particular issue that you want to do advocacy behind, meet more people from that community, you know, test your fears, um, you know, once you build a good relationship, you know, ask them some of the questions that you've been too afraid to ask, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, help and contribute and serve. I think those are really, uh, anyone can sort of do that. Um, I know a lot of pastors like this when I was a pastor, you know, Certainly I'll be, I remember actually when I was a pastor in, in Australia and I had a, I got a new assistant that had just come out of seminary and he was a Samoan pastor and had come to work with me. So um, I was supervising him. And um, even though we were both Samoan pastors, we were at a community church in one of the most marginalised, deprived areas of Australia. It had Australia's highest domestic violence rate, highest um rate of single parents so a lot of single mums um anyway um so so i did a lot of community work in that in that community so i was preaching on the saturdays but doing lots of work and building lots of relationships during the week anyway when the Samoan pastor came to work with me on the saturday uh we were in the kitchen and everyone was having lunch and uh, me and him are on the other side now serving all the people their food while people came to get food, you know, this community. Mm. And um, and I said to him, 
And we joked and I said, hey, I bet you weren't expecting this, right? Because when you're a Samoan pastor, you know, you sit at the front table and people come and serve you, you know. So um, anyway, that's all to say that um, it's a different type of leadership and a different, you know, we need to model ourselves um, so that people can see it. And I think it starts small and it starts it starts by serving and it starts by helping and it starts by relinquishing whatever privilege and power that you might have, no matter how small it is, even if it's that you get fed first and then you decide to feed last and that you help someone. I think those are all really cool ways to uh, to model leadership and to give and, and to help people feel valued and worth yeah worthwhile and, and to listen. Sorry, I've been rambling, but I just... <laughs> All good, all good. Super, super advice and recommendation. I think it can help people who may think like it takes big things and sometimes it's just the smallest act of generosity that can trigger a, a bigger change. So, yeah. Absolutely. All Absolutely. Right. Uh, well, thanks, Andre. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, for this conversation. I think what you did in 2019 was an essential thing to do in the Pacific and I hope it will trigger... Uh, deeper conversations and, and meaningful change for uh, every every people, every identities. Uh, and thanks for sharing your ideas and your thoughts uh, for this podcast today. All the best for the coming times and, and, and good speed, as we say. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, thanks for sharing your platform and I feel really privileged. And, uh, and thanks for the great work that you and the organization does as well. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye.